Last week we talked about probably one of the most real things that we could talk about, more so than what we can see and touch. And it's a subject that rarely gets talked about in the church, I think, and that's the reality that you and I are in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual battle. There are things that we cannot see, there are things that we cannot feel, but they are very much real, and they are coming after you and I. Um, A spiritual battle that's being waged on us by demonic forces. And while we tend to think of battles in terms of like action, all of the action that's happening in a battle, one of the most successful attacks of the enemy is to cause inaction right? To try to blind the eyes of people that are lost, to try to keep them from taking stock of their lives, and ultimately to create and encourage apathy. So people won't consider where they're going to spend eternity. It's one of the greatest spiritual attacks that's happening in America today. And these demons um, that were sitting around, I think I've told the story before, but um, there were these demons that were sitting around talking about how to try to trip up people and steer massive amounts of people away from the Lord. And they were talking about all these different things. And they couldn't come up with any ideas, um, any good ideas, until one of them stood up and said, I know, let's just tell them that there's no hurry. There's no hurry. We can't persuade them that there's not a God. We can't persuade them that there's not a heaven. We can't persuade them that there's not going to be punishment or hell. But maybe we could just tell them that there's no hurry. People won't take stock of their lives. They won't think about where they're going to spend eternity. And, um, you know, most people will think about um, eternity in some form or fashion, but they'll think, I'll get around to that later. All right? I just want to live my life. I just want to have fun. I'll get around to that later. A very subtle but successful strategy in the battle that we find ourselves in. But once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, okay, once you have defected from darkness into light, now you are a target. You're standing in enemy territory. And the, the, the sad thing is most people don't realize that they're standing in the dark. Whether you realize it or not, because of your sin, you were a prisoner of sin. Now you have defected to the light, and now you are enemy number one for them. And they are going to try to attack you. There are going to be demonic attacks on you, on your family. Demonic oppression is real. Demonic influence is real. And you can count on it. But that's the reason why Paul writes so fervently about how we can withstand the attacks of the enemy. He says, you better pick up the armor of God. If you want to do battle against the enemy, against the devil, against demonic forces, you'd better be wearing the armor of God. Your life needs to be wrapped up first and foremost in truth. If you don't have the truth, everything else is going to come unraveled. So you better be girded up with the belt of truth. Don't go chasing after the latest secular idea, the the last secular um, discovery. Because if it's true, then it's not new. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it ain't true. (laughs) If somebody says they have a new spiritual truth or discovery, it ain't new. Because truth ain't new. Um, Then our heart needs to be protected with the breastplate of righteousness. Psalms 119, 9 and 10 says, How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. God will guard our hearts if we pursue his righteousness, not our own righteousness through works, but his righteousness. If we do that, if we put that on by seeking after him, it will protect our hearts. Then we have the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. We have to be ready to share the good news of the gospel with whoever we come in contact with, whether that means we're holding our ground 
right, defending the faith, or whether we're advancing the kingdom, sharing our faith, we need to be ready to be able to share that with others. There's really no excuse for the Christian not to be prepared. Paul was writing this to the early church, and they didn't even have the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament, Paul teaching them and saying, there's no reason for you not to be prepared to share the gospel. Look what we have today. We have all of this. We have all this spiritual truth that's been provided for us by theologians, and yet most Christians aren't prepared to share their faith. Then we take up the shield of faith. We can't do battle without the shield, right? Can't do battle without the shield. Our faith, not in what we can do, but what Jesus has already done. And that faith will extinguish the fiery arrows of the evil one. All of those fiery arrows that hit us every single day, they're coming at us. If we pick up the shield of faith, it's going to extinguish those things that try to distract and derail us. And then we put on the helmet, the assurance of our salvation. Some of those arrows that are flying at us are trying to get you to doubt in your mind whether or not God is good and whether or not he can be trusted. That's what our small group is going to be going through, this book about trusting God. And why is it easier to obey God than to trust God? It is. It's easier to obey than to trust. And all the enemy wants to do is to shoot those arrows at you, try to get you to doubt your salvation and whether or not he's good. And then we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, our only offensive weapon to beat back the devil, but it's what Jesus used. And if Jesus used the Word, then we need to use it as well. But we have to know it so we can use it. There's a great quote that I read this week by um, a gentleman named Graham Scroge, and it goes like this, too many Christians live on the right side of Easter, but the wrong side of Pentecost, the right side of pardon, but the wrong side of power. The right side of forgiveness, but the wrong side of fellowship. They're out of Egypt, but they have not reached the land of promise and blessing. They are still wandering about in the wilderness of frustration and dissatisfaction. Does that describe a lot of Christians today? We've been given everything we need as the body to live the overcoming life that Jesus promised, and yet most Christians never even put on the armor of God. They don't pick up the sword They walk around looking defeated when there's so much joy to be had. We're in a battle, but we've also been redeemed for a purpose, okay? And that's not to wander around in the desert. That's not why you've been redeemed. That's not why he's brought you out of Egypt. It's to be witnesses for him in the world. And last week, we talked about Jesus casting out these demons from these two men, and he set them free, but then he gave them a purpose. He said, I want you to go tell everybody about what God has done for you. Tell them about his goodness. And the witness is this, I was lost, but now I'm found, right? I was blind, but now I see. I was dead in my sin, but now I'm forgiven. I've been set free spiritually. That's our topic for today. We're to be his witnesses in the world because of the forgiveness that we have received. All right, Matthew 9, starting Matthew 9. Today, we're just going to do verses 1 through 8. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. 
And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus specializes in two things, freedom and forgiveness. He specializes in freedom and forgiveness. Jesus and the disciples sailed six miles across the Sea of Galilee just for two men so that Jesus could set them free. But the people in the town asked him to leave. That was the tragic part. Jesus set these men free. They saw it. They experienced it. But then they asked him to leave. And Jesus, who's a perfect gentleman, he's not going to stay where he's not invited. He's not going to stay where he's not wanted. They go ahead and get back in the boat. He tells them, he says, listen, you can't go with me, but I want you to stay here. I want you to go preach to these people. The amazing thing is, who is he going to be preaching to? He's going to be preaching to the people that just rejected Jesus. He's going to say, listen, maybe when they see your life and they witness how you've been changed, maybe they will repent. And that is the amazing thing about God. Even for people that reject him, he still offers forgiveness. He still offers them chances to turn to him. And that's exactly what we're going to see here today. He still offers forgiveness to those that would believe. The theme of this section is one of the most important messages that the world will ever hear, and that is this, the reality that your sins can be forgiven. No other religion in the world deals with the problem of sin. No other religion deals with the problem of sin. They would either say that, you know, you have to detach yourself from the trappings of the world. You have to push away. You have to become detached, and you will find peace if you can just let go. Or... They'll say, if you feel guilty, then you need to go out and do good works. You need to do better, and by your good works, you can assuage your guilt, right? And push that down and bury it if you will do good things. Man's biggest problem is sin, which is why man's greatest need is forgiveness. Every other religion out there is the doctrine of personal achievement. Every other religion in the world is the doctrine of personal achievement. What can you do to earn peace? What can you do to earn everlasting life? Christianity is the doctrine of divine accomplishment. Okay, it's not do better. It's what he's already done for us. The central point of the gospel is that we can be freed from the penalty of sin. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are free from the penalty of sin. He has also broken the power of sin over your life. And one day we're going to be freed from the presence of sin. You've been freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin no longer has any power over you. And one day we're going to be freed from the presence of sin. When Jesus calmed the storm and when Jesus cast out the demons for these two men, he was giving us a foretaste of what that day is going to be like. The Old Testament tells us that the Messiah's kingdom was going to be marked by forgiveness and redemption. It tells that, prophesied that in the Old Testament. Isaiah 33 says, no inhabitant will say, I am sick. And the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. In chapter 40 of Isaiah, it says, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended and her iniquity is pardoned. We'll be free eternally. All right, and we've already been forgiven, totally. You really turned that heat up, didn't you? (laughs) No, I'm sweating. No, no, you're fine. It'll be okay. All right. (laughs) Jesus, by forgiving, by the forgiveness that he offers in this recorded passage today and many other things that Jesus did, I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. (laughs) She's good. She's a good wife. What Jesus was demonstrating is that this power 
over and over again that he showed the people was reserved for God alone. The kind of power that he was exhibiting was reserved for God alone. The scriptures prophesied that this would happen when the Messiah showed up. When the Messiah is on the scene, there would be restoration, there would be forgiveness, there would be healing. And it was his fulfillment of these prophecies that made the Jews' rejection of him that much more egregious. The fact that they saw all these signs and wonders that had been prophesied in the Old Testament, and they still didn't believe it. The Jewish people today don't even believe that he was a prophet. They still don't believe he was a prophet. They believe he was a false prophet, which is sad. That is the veil that's been pulled over their eyes. Um, If you talk to Jewish people today and you were to ask them, you know, how are you going to be saved? The temple doesn't exist. There's no longer a way to keep the law of Moses. The sacrifices can't happen. How can you be saved? They would just say, well, we're going to try to, you know, live a good life and we're God's chosen people. And if we can do more good things than bad things, then we're hoping that we can be saved. But that's not, that's not the way. And they know that. They know that internally, that that's not the way that it works. And the veil has been pulled over their eyes. They're still rejecting Jesus as Messiah. This is probably one of the most famous miracles that we read about in the scriptures. We all saw this uh, when we were in Sunday school, the whole, you know, story of the man that you know, been, has been led through the roof to Jesus' feet. And this happens in three of the Gospels. It also appears in Mark and Luke's Gospel. And they give us a little bit more information. They're pretty similar. So I'm just going to read this parallel passage from Mark. It says, When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, everything that Jesus had done before he went over the Sea of Galilee had started to spread. And crowds were starting to, I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee in the first place. He's like, I got all these crowds, they're pressing in me, I'm exhausted, let's go to the other side. It says that Jesus oftentimes withdrew and went went away to desolate places to get away from the crowds. Now, Jesus didn't have a home. It says that he was at home. And we know that Jesus didn't have a home. He didn't own anything. So what are they talking about? Well, I mentioned earlier that Peter had completely relocated his life, right? Peter was from Bethsaida, the house of fishing. That's where Peter was from. But he had taken his family and relocated to Capernaum to be where Jesus was. He had made that kind of his temporary headquarters. And Peter was there, so he's probably staying at the home of Peter. And so here we have Jesus. He's probably in Peter's house, and he's doing a small group, right, which has turned into a large group, so much so that people can't even get through the front door. And here come five friends. Now, I love this account because it's a wonderful illustration of literally bearing one another's burdens. Five friends who weren't going to let the inconvenience of the crowd keep them from taking their friend to Jesus. Bible has a lot to say about community, about community, right? Uh, When we went through the book of Galatians, for those of you who are here, uh, there was this famous verse, Galatians 6-2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Not the law of Moses. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're to be a people that come alongside each other and build each other up and encourage each other. 
Now, if you remember just a few verses later, so that was 6 verse 2, if 6 verse 5, it says each person will have to bear his own load. So why are we to bear one another's burdens when it says that every one of us have to bear our own load? Now, in case you don't have your notes with you from Galatians, the difference between burden and load. When it speaks of a load, that word load in that context speaks of a pack, like a, like a backpack, something personal. This speaks of a personal responsibility that every single person has. I am a father. I am a husband. Taking care of them is my load. Okay, that's my personal responsibility. But a burden, a burden is something that can crush someone. All right, it's not something that we can or should carry on our own. We need other people to walk alongside us. The paralytic, literally, he couldn't lift anything, right? He couldn't even get himself across the room. He had a burden. Now, as Christians, we have a front row seat to all of the sin and all of the corruptness that we see in the world. And we live in the midst of a broken and sinful world amongst broken, sinful people. And yet we hold the truth of Jesus and the gospel inside of us, right? We see it, but we have the truth inside of us. I love the way Paul says it. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have this treasure, this truth of the gospel, what Jesus can do for other people, how he can heal, how he can restore. We have it in jars of clay. You and I are the jars of clay, by the way. That's us. And this treasure is what's supposed to shine out through our brokenness. Okay, we're crackpots, all of us. Jars of clay, we're crackpots. And that treasure, his light is to be shining through that. And we do that when we help other people when we help carry their burdens. Now, when Galatians 6.2 says to bear one another's burdens, it also means truly hurting with those that hurt. It means getting into the mess with them. People are messy. Now, some people try to hide their burdens, okay? They try to hide it. They don't want other people to see it. We have to actually be willing to open up and let other people carry our burdens with us. We have to be vulnerable. This man had no pride left. Okay, there was nothing that he could do for himself. He couldn't hide his brokenness. It was there for everyone to see. Imagine if he hadn't let his friends carry him. If his pride had gotten in the way and said, listen, guys, you don't have to take me anywhere. I'm fine. Just let me stay here. He would not have made it to Jesus's feet. Oftentimes, we don't want people to see our brokenness because that can bring on feelings of shame, feelings of embarrassment. That's one of the most successful attacks that the enemy has too, is to keep people embarrassed or ashamed of the way that our brokenness or our sinfulness has affected us because it keeps people out of community. That's what it does. It keeps them embarrassed of their situation, keeps them under the shame of sin. And when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, we open up to other people about our burden, we'll find that those people will help us carry our burden. We'll also find that that very hurt can fuel our faith in God, our prayer life, our hope, that we have in Jesus' return. When we look at it and say, you know what? I am a broken and sinful person, but God has redeemed me. He has forgiven me. That hurt now fuels me to be the kind of person that Christ has called me to be and to live in community and also serve other people. The body of Christ is powerful and together we can and should lift a lot of burdens. Now, if one friend had tried to take him all by himself, it would have been basically impossible to try to take this paralytic to Jesus all by himself. Two could have done it easier right? But four men took him to the rooftop and then laid him at Jesus's feet. 
Okay? This is the reason why we have small groups. This is the reason why we're supposed to do life together. Yes, we study and we go through material, but it's also a chance for us to do life together. That's the reason why um, the elders are going to be reaching out to you guys, not to pry into your life, but it's to see how you guys are doing in case there's anything that we can come alongside and help bear together. We're called to bear the burdens of others, but we're not called to do it alone. These five friends were in it together. Uh, There's a verse in Proverbs 18. It's verse 24. There's several translations of its meaning, but the English English standard version says it this way. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Some translations say fake friends can destroy each other. And several say a man with unreliable friends comes to ruin. Now, these weren't unreliable friends. These were real true friends, but there's one that's truer still, and that's the one that they brought him to. Real friends point each other to Jesus. That's what we do. And we do need to be careful when we're sympathizing with our friends, okay, when they're going through hard times, that we don't just sit in the pit together, okay? We're not just agreeing with them that, yes, this is bad, this is horrible, I can't believe this is happening in your life. But what we need to do is point others to Jesus, point them to the truth that God has ordained these circumstances for a reason, and he has a purpose in it. Now, we are to you know, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We are supposed to come alongside people, not to wallow in the pity, but to point people to Jesus. All right, friendship and now faith. There was friendship and now we see faith. In that time, it was a very commonly held belief that if you were sick or if you had an infirmity of some kind, that there must be kind of sin in your life, some kind of sin, some kind of um, something that was not in line with God, and this was a result of God's judgment or his punishment in your life. It's just kind of to add insult to injury, literally, to say you're sick because there must be some kind of sin in your life. And sadly, a lot of people still hold this belief. They think that God is, you know, the cosmic killjoy who is holding the lightning bolts, just waiting for you to mess up. So when you sin, then your car, well, now my car breaks down, right? Or, you know, now my dryer's broken. There must have been something that I did in my, I know God was going to get me for that thing that I did. They still have this view of God. You know, this God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. People read the Bible and they're like, I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. He's judgmental. He was always there to, you know, pour out his wrath. I like the God of the New Testament because he's the one that's full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. The reality is that God hasn't changed, but there was an event that happened that changed everything. And that was Jesus's death on the cross because what that did was satisfy God's wrath on his people. Now we live in the era of grace right? Because his wrath has been satisfied. And we're going to live in the area of grace until we're taken home, until we're taken to heaven. But the Jewish people very much held to this view of the wrath of God and the mindset that it was probably you that sinned. And that's the reason why this happened. Or it could have even been your parents. Either you sinned or your parents sinned. And that's the reason why you have this problem in your life. In Job 4-7, his friend Eliphaz says this. He says, remember, who, who was it that ever perished that was innocent? Who was ever innocent that perished, Job? There must be something in your life that's not right. You must have sinned for God to do these things to you or to allow them in your life. And then John 9, Jesus and his disciples pass by this man who was born blind, and they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it wasn't this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
Nobody's sin. It's not, a, it's not a result of personal sin. We live in a world that's under the curse, the curse of sin. Okay? The brokenness of this world is the work of the devil. And I quoted it last week, but 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the reason why he came, to destroy those works. As I said before, we're still in the presence of the curse, but we've been delivered of the penalty of the curse and the power of the curse. These things that plague our bodies, you know, going up to visit Bob in the hospital, all of these things that plague our bodies physically are a graphic illustration of the destructive power of sin in the world. Okay, but our faith, our faith is an outward and even greater outward illustration of an inward conviction that we believe he is who he said he was, right? That we're forgiven, that he's redeemed us. And just like the song, that there will be a day when every tear is wiped away, when death will be no more. The interesting thing that we read in all three Gospels is that Jesus says when he saw their faith, not the paralytic man's faith, when he saw his friend's faith, then he spoke to him. They put feet to their faith. He couldn't put feet to his faith. He couldn't go there. They put feet to their faith, and Jesus removes his sin. They removed every obstacle. They overcame every potential problem to get their friend to Jesus because they believed. Now, this convicts me, okay, because I have faith, but who am I believing God for? Who am I having faith for? Now, my faith can't save anyone eternally. Each person has to make that decision on their own, but who am I praying for? Who am I removing obstacles from to get them to the Lord? Who am I having faith for that God will do a work in their life? Because if you enter that realm, if you have faith for people, if you are believing and praying for people, you'll see miracles happen. You'll see people come to the Lord when you have faith on their behalf. We can place them at his feet in prayer. Will there be emotional pain? Sometimes heartache? Absolutely. It's part of the mess. It's part of the messiness of walking with people. Um, 29 years today. Alicia and I have been together 29 years today. That's awesome. Married for 25, but we've been with each other for 29 years today. And there's been some mess, okay? There's been some mess as we've been walking together. But there's also been forgiveness, okay? There's also been faith and lots of prayer, okay, through the whole thing. People are messy, but it's worth it. This man's friends found it out as they approached boldly in faith, They placed him at Jesus' feet, and Jesus could see that they had faith that he could perform this miracle. Friends, faith, and now forgiveness. When Jesus saw their faith, he spoke to the paralytic. He said, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Take heart. Other translations say, take courage, or be of good cheer, or be encouraged. After being carried up onto the rooftop, okay, put on ropes, on those buildings, the steps were on the outside of the building. So that outer wall, they had steps. There was no handrail. There was no OSHA back then, okay? So they're walking up these outward stairs carrying this stretcher, okay? They carry them all the way up to the rooftop. Then they tie ropes to this stretcher, and, lo- and they start tearing away the roof, lower him through. He was probably pretty freaked out by this whole thing. The first thing God says to him, the first thing Jesus says is, take courage. Don't be afraid, Now, this was the kind of man that people often ignored. People didn't want to look at. They would ignore this type of person. Now he's in the spotlight. Everybody's staring at him, wondering what's going to happen. Jesus says, don't be afraid. 
and he calls him son. Jesus speaks tenderly to our fearful hearts, okay? He's compassionate. He speaks comfort, not condemnation, over our broken states. Jesus never condemned people for being sick. He never condemned them for being demon-possessed. And when he set them free, he would say, go and sin no more. He didn't even condemn people for their sin. He would say, listen, I've forgiven you. Your sin is gone. You've been freed. Now go and sin no more. Leave that sinful lifestyle. Live a life for God. Don't live a life for yourself. He felt their pain. He entered into their suffering. He is a compassionate Savior. That's what we have. We have a compassionate Savior. Romans 1 tells us, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. If you are feeling condemnation in your life for things that you've done in the past, that is the devil talking, okay? That's not Jesus. He doesn't condemn you. He's already forgiven you. If you are his, then you've been forgiven for every sin you've ever done, every sin you are doing currently, or every sin you ever will commit. Because you are now in Christ. He has forgiven you. There's no more condemnation. When we bring our brokenness to him and place our trust in him, we're no longer under judgment. People had been looking at this man judgmentally for years. Okay? Looking at him, wondering what kind of sin he had committed for something so terrible to happen to him or his parents. When Jesus tells this man, he says, your sins are forgiven. The verb that's used there in the Greek is the word aphemi, which has the idea of driving away something, all right, or doing away with. In one of the sacrifices, they would have two goats, okay? One goat would become the sacrifice, and the other goat symbolically had the sins placed on it and then run out, driven out of the city into the wilderness. So there was Blood that covered the sin, and then there was driven out into the wilderness. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Your sins have been driven out and done away with. David probably wrote it best in Psalm 103, verse 12. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. It's a great picture because you can travel east indefinitely. You can, you can just always go east or west indefinitely. I'm really glad that David didn't say he has removed your sin as far as the north is from the south because you can travel so far north and then you're going south again, right? You just go in a continuous loop. You can go east and west for infinity. That's the reason why he wrote it that way. It's a short trip north before you start going out south. And some people live in this continual north-south loop. Forgiveness and condemnation. Forgiveness and condemnation. That's not what he's done. He has separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. He's driven it out. He remembers it no more. There were some missionaries who were up in Alaska, and they were trying to minister and uh, be missionaries to these Eskimo people. And when they were translating the Bible into their language, they were having a hard time trying to find a word for forgiveness. They didn't have a word like that in their vocabulary. And obviously, they were pretty concerned because how are you supposed to relay the truth of the gospel without the word forgiveness? And after patient listening to these people, they discovered a word that meant not being able to think about it anymore. Not being able to think about it anymore. And that's the word, that's the phrase that they used for forgiveness because God's promise to those who are repentant is, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That means ever, no more. God isn't going to hold that against you once you are in Christ. All right, now we see the fury of the scribes and the Pharisees that were present. These men who already considered themselves righteous based on all of their works, based on keeping the law of Moses perfectly. And really, they resented 
Jesus' offer of forgiveness, not just because they didn't believe that he was God, which was the main reason, but also because they believed that it was repulsive that you could just ask for forgiveness. There had to be shedding of blood. There had to be keeping of the law perfectly. It can't be that easy. You have to earn it somehow through pain and suffering and denial. But Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not through yours. It's through my pain, my suffering, my denial that forgiveness is offered. Like I said, the Jews can't, off, they can't um, keep the law of Moses. There cannot be any sacrifices. That's why when the day comes and they're making preparations today, there is a way for the temple to be built on the Temple Mount right now where the Dome of the Rock sits and it won't have to be moved. There is room actually for both of them to be there. And when the Antichrist comes, he will figure this out. He will create, he will facilitate peace in the Middle East and then he will show them how the temple can be built there on the Temple Mount. The temple will be rebuilt, and then the sacrifices will resume, and they will think that this guy is the Messiah. They'll think that this guy is the Savior because they will start doing the sacrifices again. They'll start keeping the law of Moses perfectly again until they realize they've been tricked. They've been deceived. This is the Antichrist. The two great barriers to salvation have always been the refusal to recognize the need for salvation and forgiveness and the thought that they can be earned by works. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, said, look, prostitutes and tax collectors are going into the kingdom before you guys because they realize their need for forgiveness and their complete inadequacy apart from him. When I was a teenager, um, I would hear, they would bring people in to do these testimonies, right? And they would share the testimony of their life, how God had delivered them from all this alcohol and drugs and all this, you know, immoral lifestyle. And people were really impressed by these testimonies. And I remember thinking to myself, I wish I had a really cool testimony that people would be impressed with. Which is a really stupid statement if you think about it. Because I'm saying, I wish that I had been so depraved, you know, or wrecked my life through sin so bad that Jesus had to come and pull me out of it kicking and screaming. It's a pretty stupid thing to say. And somebody very wise said to me, God has saved you from those things, from that heartache, from that pain. You are in just as much need of forgiveness as the person who came out of that wrecked lifestyle. You're in just as much need of grace from him. You're not a super saint. Just because you were raised in the church, just because you didn't have this terrible immoral lifestyle doesn't make you any better, doesn't put you any farther ahead than the person who has wrecked their life through sin. That's just pride talking, right? That's pride. The original sin of pride, which means, yeah, you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. You just have to accept it. Verse 3, Behold, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? In 1 Samuel 16, God sent the prophet Samuel out to anoint a new king in Israel. Okay? And he sent him to the house of Jesse. They wanted a king like all the other nations. Samuel said, no, you don't. They said, yes, we do. So God gave him Saul, King Saul. It didn't work out very well. That was proof that they should not have asked for a king. They should have been governed by God, which is what Israel means. And so he sends Samuel out to the house of Jesse, and he says, bring all your sons out here. I'm here to anoint a new king. Brings them all out, except for one, the youngest, little David, out with the sheep, they didn't think him worthy, so they brought everybody else out. And Samuel looks at the oldest one, and he says, man, this guy, the oldest, tall, dark, and handsome, he must be the guy. He must be God's man. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but looks on the outward, as man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Psalms 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God sees right through us. He knows our thoughts, which is a pretty scary thought, right? He knows every thought we have, which is why I'm really glad that I'm forgiven. See, sometimes I think that I'm doing pretty good because the words don't leave my mouth. I'm re- I like to talk, but I'm also good at like not saying things. I can hold my mouth really good, but that doesn't mean that it's not going on in my head. He knows all the thoughts, all the things that I want to say, I just don't say. God knows our hearts. And as Jesus forgives this man's sin, the self-righteous Pharisees are appalled. They begin to think evil in their hearts. Probably about stoning him because that was the penalty for blasphemy, death. They start thinking about that and Jesus says, why are you thinking evil? Because he was identifying himself as God because only God can forgive sins. He'd done all the signs, all of the miracles that were promised when the Messiah was going to come, but they still didn't believe. And Jesus just comes out and says it. He's like, your sins are removed. That's right. I'm God. I can forgive sins. Your sins are removed. Here's the thing. This is the interesting thing. Sin and disease are actually inseparable. They are. They they go together. Okay? Now, you're not sick because you sinned personally, probably. You're not sick because you sinned personal. But disease and every kind of deterioration in the world is a result of sin. The fallen state of the world that we live in comes with living here. But you can't separate them. Not the way that the Pharisees thought. Okay, they go together, but not the way that the Pharisees thought. So healing a paralyzed man and forgiving sin are both equally impossible for man. All right, we're not forgiving sins. We're not healing people in our own power, but both are equally possible for God. Now, Jesus is doing something really interesting here, and he did this throughout his ministry, and that is this. He's exposing their wrong theology. He's exposing their wrong theology. And here's what I mean. If sickness and disease are a consequence of personal sin, then removing disease, healing somebody, would be dealing with that sin in some form. Are you following? If they're connected and he does healing, then that has to address sin if they think the two go together. So by their own declaration, only God can, can you know, forgive sin. But if Jesus is forgiving sin and he's also healing somebody and they think these two go together, then they're kind of trapped in their bad theology, right? And what you'll find today as a result of churchgoers not reading their Bibles or not sitting under biblical teaching is that they've developed their own theology which contradicts the Scriptures. They contradicts what the Bible actually says, but the Bible never contradicts itself. Regardless of what people try to say, the Bible never contradicts itself. Then Jesus asked them another question. Jesus asks a lot of questions. We're reading this, uh, you know, our small group book, and and like the first chapter is like nothing but questions. Like, man, this whole thing is questions. Jesus asked 307 questions in the Gospels. Kyla went to a a camp this summer, a two-week camp, right? And one of the lectures was on defending the faith. How do you defend your faith? And she came back and she taught us. And she said, the best way, if you want to correct someone's theology, or even in another religion for that matter, is ask them questions. 
Okay, we know what we believe. Arguing with them is probably not going to persuade them. So ask them, why do you believe what you believe? Most of the time, people don't know. They can't verbalize. They can't explain why they believe what they believe. Even a lot of Christians, unfortunately. And their belief system is on very thin ice. And so when we ask those questions and people have to try to defend what they believe, then we can pull out the Scripture and say, listen, I'm not arguing with you. This is what the Scriptures say. So if your belief, if your theology doesn't match up with what the Scripture says, the Scripture is true. The scripture is not wrong. Your theology needs to get in line with the Bible, not the other way around. Um, somebody asked Charles Spurgeon once, they said, how do you defend the Bible? And Spurgeon said, how do you defend the Bible? How do you defend a lion? You just let it out of its cage, right? Lion can defend itself. The Bible defends itself. It stands on its own. We don't have to defend it. Verse 5, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Which is easier to say? From the outside, it would seem that saying the words, the saying the words your sins are forgiven, would be way easier than telling people to rise up and walk, than to perform an actual miracle. Because forgiveness is something that happens internally. It's something that happens spiritually. But he also gave them an outward sign. That would seem like it would be more difficult, but let's think about what's really going on here. How are our sins forgiven? Through Jesus' death and his bloodshed on the cross. That's how our sins are forgiven, through his sacrifice. Because he's God, he has the power to perform miracles, to cast out demons, to restore bodies. But to forgive sin, it was going to cost him his life. He was going to have to die so that this man's sins would be forgiven. So what seemed like the easier thing to do, to say, was going to be the most costly thing to do. The thing that seemed like it was easier to say was going to be the most costly thing to do. Forgiveness is free, but it's not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. Jesus paid the enormous penalty for our sins that we could never pay. There's one eternal principle that will be valid as long as the world exists, and that is this, that forgiveness is a costly thing. Okay, divine forgiveness is costly. God is love. Yes, he is, but he's also holiness. God is love, but he's also holiness. God, least of all, cannot break the great moral laws on which this universe is built, the way he built it. Sin must have his punishment, or the very structure of the universe would disintegrate. And God alone can only pay the terrible price that's necessary for us to be forgiven. Forgiveness is never a case, never a case of saying, it's all right, it doesn't matter. That's not forgiveness. It has to be paid for. It's the costliest thing in the world. So Jesus told this man to rise. When Jesus spoke, the healing was already taking place. All he had to do was listen and obey. That's really what we need to do. We need to listen and we need to obey. He's given us instructions on how we're supposed to live as disciples. He's given us instructions on how we're supposed to live this life as Christians. But we have to obey. When we listen to his voice, when we read through the word, we can be a living testimony to his goodness. That's what this man was going to be. He was going to be a living testimony to the goodness of Jesus and to the goodness of God. Then it says that the crowd was afraid. The word afraid in the Greek is phobio, which is where we get our word phobia from. 
But most of the time, when it's used in the New Testament, it refers to awe, not fright. Not somebody being afraid, but being in reverential awe of the Lord. The same word that was used when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, it's the same word that was used when the disciples, um, when they saw him calm the storm. It's the the same one that they used when they saw the demon-possessed men that were freed. When Zechariah was responding to the angel in reverential awe when it told him that he was going to have a little Baptist son named John. Reverential awe. Same word that was used when the shepherds saw the angel singing, announcing the birth of Christ. It's the feeling in a person's heart when we're confronted with divine power. The reverential awe that should be part of a truly repentant life. Solomon wrote that the reverential awe of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts. Forgiveness, honestly, is the greatest miracle that's ever been performed. Jesus shedding his blood on the cross so that we could be redeemed and be made right with him is the greatest miracle of all. That's the greatest work. Which means that Christians should actually be the most joyful the happiest people, the most appreciative people on earth. Jesus told the Pharisees, the one who had been forgiven much loves much. You know, the woman broke in and she was crying and she anointed Jesus and she was wiping his, his feet with her tears and her hair. And they were saying, this man, this woman, which he read the Pharisees' thoughts as he said, this, if, this, if Jesus knew the kind of woman that was doing this to him right now, He would not let her continue to do this because she was, you know, a prostitute, basically. And Jesus said, listen, he starts talking about, he tells a parable about a servant that couldn't repay what he owed to the king. One owed a lot, one owed a little. He forgave both of them. He said, which one of these do you think was more appreciative to the king? He's like, well, I guess the one that owed the greater debt. He said, that's right. One who has been forgiven much, loves much. You meet somebody who's been rescued out of an immoral, wrecked lifestyle. Those people can be so full of joy, so happy of where they are now compared to where they were because of the Lord. Last thing, when they saw it, the people were afraid they gave glory to God. When Jesus performed miracles, it says people gave glory to God. He wanted to glorify the Father. When we look at the church today, uh, we see a lot of celebrities. Honestly, we see a lot of celebrities in the church today, and too often they become the center of attention, right? And the glory doesn't end up going to God, it ends up going to man. Um, When God things happen, God gets the glory. When man things happen, men get the glory. Um, I never want to be the center of attention around here. I want Jesus to be the center of attention. We are merely facilitators of introducing people to Jesus right? Worshiping the Lord, talking about his word, digging through his truth. There was a a young man, he was determined to win the affection of this young lady. And she wasn't talking to him anymore. And so he started writing her letters. He would write her letters every day. And she wasn't reading the letters. She wasn't even responding to him. So he's like, all right, I need to increase my output. So he started writing more letters to her. And eventually, this lady, you know, she, she broke down. She softened up, and she ended up getting married. But she married the mailman. Because he was the one that kept bringing the letters to her house every single day. So she developed this relationship with the postman. Now, we have been given 
the best letter ever, okay? But too many times we become infatuated with the messengers, okay? We need to be infatuated with the one who has written this letter to us. He's the one that forgives. He's the one that gives us the faith to believe. He's the one that places us into community so that we can bear one another's burdens. It's a beautiful story. There's so much to unpack from community and friendship and bearing one another's burdens to the faith, the faith to believe, not just for the healing, but also for, you know, their friend. And we need to be praying and having faith for those who are lost, praying them into the kingdom, removing obstacles, inviting them into relationship, and then also forgiveness, the greatest miracle that's ever been performed. The thing that we should be so joyous about that our sin has been forgiven. It's been done away with. It's been driven out. He remembers it no more.